Let's open our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. There are a multitude of places that we could turn to to begin this study, but let's go to the ninth chapter of Isaiah. Most know and love verse 6. But verse 6 is only part of the thought, and we want it all. Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 6, I'll read two verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Amen and amen. I believe both verses equally. I hope that you believe both verses equally and love them both. It says that this child and son that God would send, which we know is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, would have the government upon his shoulder. That means he would bear the burden of the government because he would be the governor, because he would be the king. And of the increase of that government, there would be no end. And it would be established with judgment and justice forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts for exalting His Son Jesus would make sure that it happened. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ that we worship. He is the Prince of Peace because He crushes His enemies so that there is no more war. He is the Prince of Peace because He laid down His life in Zerubbabel's temple or nearby, to make peace for us with God. He is the mighty God. All things were created by Jesus Christ, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Lord Jesus Christ in His divine nature is the everlasting Father. Oh, is that a difficult one for the eternal sonship, folks. They really need to believe in eternal fatherhood. Because it says He is the everlasting Father. He is wonderful. He is counselor. And I hope that you love him this morning. And he has a kingdom and he is king. And we want to consider that today. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 for one verse of scripture there. Matthew 24. We have seen earlier this morning from Matthew 22, in the first seven verses of it, a parable that Jesus gave in which the kingdom of heaven was likened unto a king holding a marriage for his son. He invited the Jews to that marriage and they refused it. They spitefully treated the servants that he sent to them and then they killed them. So that king was wroth with the Jewish nation, that is the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his armies The Roman armies under his direction, as all armies have always been under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He destroyed those murderers and He burned up their city. And then we were told that His servants were sent out into the highways to compel other guests to come to that wedding. And those are us, brethren. We are the heathen and the Gentiles that the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ went and preached the gospel to. And we made up the kingdom of heaven. And we do so at this hour. Matthew chapter 24, I want one verse for the time being. And it's verse 14. And it is this verse that has convicted me for a long time, and especially in recent weeks, and why I'm preaching to you this morning on this subject. Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. This verse is so misunderstood and misapplied by so many. It was once understood and properly applied by most. But in the last 170 years, since the creation of Adventism, pre-tribulationaryism, and the other isms of Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, Clarence Larkin, C.I. Schofield, J.N. Darby, and other heretics, the meaning and understanding of this verse has been lost. Our fathers 200 years ago didn't have a problem with this verse. They all knew when it was fulfilled. And today I want to tell you when it was fulfilled. So that you can rejoice in God's sovereign judgment of those that reject His message. And His sovereign mercy in those that receive it. This gospel of the kingdom. And we've already begun talking about the kingdom this morning. Matthew 22 was about Jesus as King. Psalm 2 was about Jesus as King. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, was about Jesus as King. That gospel that includes that message and many more things I want to share with you this morning from God's Word, was preached, was preached, in all the world, to all nations, before 70 A.D., and it was preached for a specific reason. As a witness. Amen. Because in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, there is a witness and a testimony made that Jesus of Nazareth, though of humble beginnings, though of an obscure life, though of the death of a common criminal on a cross, is King and Lord of all. That is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost to the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And that is what has been preached ever since. That's what we're going to preach in this church. And that was preached in all the world to all nations. And I'll prove it over and over and over again today. Before 70 A.D. And then the end came. And the end that is under consideration in Matthew 24 is the end of the Old Testament, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, the end of the priesthood, the end of the Mosaic economy, the end of Judaism, wiped off the face of the earth as far as any part of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven was given to the Gentiles who worship in spirit and in truth. It was just last Sunday when I showed you from John chapter 4 that Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, Woman, believe me, 
They're not going to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth, either in your mountain or in the city of Jerusalem, because it has nothing to do with the worship of God. The Jerusalem that counts in the New Testament is above, and it's the mother of us all, and it's where Jesus Christ sits with an innumerable company of angels and with the spirits of just men made perfect as our Lord, our King, and our Savior at this very hour. And we have received a kingdom, though we be Gentiles, and were initially outside the commonwealth of Israel. We are the Israel of God, because God has united a few converted, saved and converted Jews with a multitude of saved and converted Gentiles and made them His church. So there's two things we want to get. Well, there's several things from verse 14. But we want to show that the end was the end of the Jewish nation, the end of the Old Testament, the end of the priesthood, the end of the temple, because it's the temple and the city that he's talking about with his disciples, because they were admiring the stones of the temple. The temple that was in Jerusalem at this time had been started by Zerubbabel. When they, when the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity in Jerusalem in 456 BC, you say, how do you know that date? Very simple. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Amen. That's how. I don't care what, what chronology you show me. I don't care what Bible you open. And at the top of Daniel 9, it tells you that it was 558 or 600 BC. I know that it was exactly 456 BC because 70 weeks were determined. That's 490 years on the people of Israel. Right. We'll probably look at that passage. But that was determined. This temple in Jerusalem had been built by Zerubbabel with a, with a small beginning. Herod had taken 46 years to add to it. It really wasn't completed, fully completed until in the 60s A.D. But it was glorious. And we have Jesus and his disciples admiring the stones of the temple. Because the historical records tell us that they were like 25 to 40 feet long, 8 to 12 feet wide and 6 feet thick in marble. Now that's a pretty decent chunk of marble. Pretty decent chunk. And it was beautiful. It is said that you couldn't look at it in a bright sunlight because it was so bright from white marble and from the gold. Now the disciples have taken the Lord Jesus. They've been to the temple many times. But there's a difference now. Jesus had called that house my father's house. When he drove the money changers out of it. But now he had just told them in Matthew chapter 23, your house is left unto you desolate. God has forsaken it. God is gone. Your house is your pile of stones. And he tells his disciples, why are you so impressed by this? I'm going to tear this thing to shreds and there's not going to be two stones still attached to each other. I will level this place. And then he goes on to describe to them what signs that they would know that he was about to come to do that so that they could get out of Jerusalem and out of Judea and flee to the mountains and be saved from the wrath of God that was coming on that generation. The men living at the time Jesus Christ was alive. The men that crucified the Lord of glory. The men that persecuted and spitefully treated the apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus. The men that put them to death. He would destroy them. And all the Christians would be saved because they would believe the warning Jesus Christ had given them by the simple prophecy. They would flee Judea. 
They would flee Jerusalem. It's a most practical prophecy. It has nothing to do with the second coming. Because the second coming, you don't care whether it's the Sabbath day or not. Do you care? Do you care if Jesus comes? There isn't such a thing as the Sabbath day. Do you care if you're nursing when Jesus comes? It doesn't have anything to do with the second coming. Because it has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus was warning, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath when you'll be restricted for your distance. Pray that you're not nursing. Pray that it's not in the winter. I don't care if Jesus comes in the winter. I don't care if He comes in the summer. I just hope He comes soon. Amen. The, the prophecy is to keep... It was a practical advice. And He's going to give that practical advice over and over and over. All the way to the cross. Jesus is still... There's women following Him. And they're weeping and mourning for Him. He said... Daughters of Jerusalem, don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves and your children. That's what happens in 40 years. We know that from reading the Bible because the generation that came out of Egypt were them and their children down to the age of 20, and it took how many years to get rid of them all? 40. And in those 40 years, God was going to judge that generation. But he preached the gospel in the whole world for a witness. And what I want to do as the ambassador of Jesus Christ is to tell you about that witness and that testimony that went into all the world to all nations so that they would know the details of this prophecy and some others. And then when it happened, they would all be incredibly convinced of the divine origin of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and the accuracy and reliability of the Bible. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is the second most important event in the New Testament. The first being the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The next event for its severity, for its glory, for its power, and for its convincing witness, and for the destruction of enemies, and the final ending of the Old Covenant, and the installation and establishment of the New Covenant, is the destruction of Jerusalem. Prophecy is given. This prophecy is given to save some Jews that were believers so they could get out of Jerusalem and Judea and be saved. But it's also given for a witness. Because all those people in other nations, they weren't going to go hide in mountains. They were going to read the newspapers about what was happening in Judea and Jerusalem and know that they had had simple preachers come out of Judea and had preached this message to them, and now it was happening in the details that God had described it, and it would be a witness to the whole world. It is, it is the single greatest testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is King and Lord, Amen. though the Romans and the Jews crucified Him, that Christianity is God's religion, and that the Bible is true. Right. All of that was confirmed in one great witness of what happened in 70 AD. Yeah. Here's the problem. No one today knows anything about 70 A.D. Because they'd rather read the Schofield Reference Bible that talks about some millennial kingdom and some tribulation with an antichrist with a 666 glowing from his forehead with horns and with a long nose and a tail coming out from under his suit. Clarence Larkin in his cartoon book, Dispensational Truth. There isn't any truth in it. J.N. Darby, C.I. Schofield, and all the rest that have come from them the last 170 years have gotten rid of the proper understanding of God's Word to jam all these prophecies out in the future where they do no one any good. There's no witness, there is no testimony, and there is no warning. 
they themselves are all called pre-tribulationists. That means we will never go through Matthew 24 because Jesus will come before Matthew 24 is fulfilled. Then why have Matthew 24? When Matthew 24 is given to be a warning about something we're supposed to do. Do you all know what the word pre-tribulation means? It means before the tribulation. It means Jesus will come before the tribulation so that believers don't go through the tribulation. This says you're going to go through the tribulation. For then shall be, verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Why is it shortened for the elect's sake? Because the elect are in it. Are they in Jerusalem? No. They're out on the mountains of Judea in Pella across the Jordan River trying to survive while Jerusalem's being sieged by the Roman armies. And if they took too long taking the city, they'd die of starvation. Those days shall be shortened, and those days were shortened. It's ignored. Nobody wants Jesus Christ as King. Nobody wants Him as Lord. They're little fantasies about some future tribulation that won't affect a child of God in the whole universe. It's ridiculous to have a seven-year tribulation. Do you know where they get that? Because they steal the 70th week of Daniel from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and give it to the Antichrist. Anyone that believes in a postponement of the 70th week is Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. I don't know where I'm going this morning, except I hope that it's organized enough for you to follow it. I've got so many pages here, and I don't want to preach for a month on this subject. Daniel chapter 9. They are called pre-tribulationists that inhabit this city. From Bob Jones University and the rest of the institutions like that. Here's the order of things. Jesus Christ is going to come back at any minute in a rapture and sneak all the Christians out of here. And you've seen pictures maybe of buses careening off roads, planes crashing, cars crashing, because the saints are going to be yanked out of this world. The unbelievers are just going to keep right on living. And for seven years, they're going to have an Antichrist ruling over them. For three and a half years, he's going to be a nice guy. For three and a half years, he's going to be a bad guy. Then at the end of the bad guy years, Jesus is going to come for the third time. Jesus is going to come back for the third coming, in which he'll destroy the Antichrist, and he'll set up a kingdom... In Jerusalem, Israel, one of the poorest cities on earth, he'll set up a kingdom there, build an altar, and reinstitute animal sacrifices for a 1,000-year millennium. He'll open the doors of the zoo, and the lions and the lambs are going to lie down together and lick each other. Then Jesus will come for the fourth time. For that thousand years, he will have reigned on earth and kept his enemies kind of under control. Then at the end of that thousand years, he'll lose Satan again, and he'll come for the fourth time in glorious splendor to destroy the devil. And then we have the new heavens and the new earth. We have four comings. And they're all in the future where they don't affect any of us at all. They're not a witness or a testimony to anything. Because the people on earth are going to be unsaved during the tribute. There's no more time to waste on that tripe. That was nobody, nobody 
had ever heard of such a thing before 1800. No one believed that order of events that I just gave you. Well, except a couple Jesuits that wrote some books that J.N. Darby and others picked up on. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when the Lord Jesus Christ appears the next time, there is going to be one resurrection of the just and the unjust. He is coming to judge the quick and the dead, and we're going to all stand before God. When he comes to get us, he's coming in flaming fire to get them as well. It's just going to be a different kind of getting. Daniel chapter 9. Before we read Daniel 9, let, let me just keep reminding you of this fact. What I am trying to tell you this morning was once understood and known. And it no longer is. No one wants Jesus Christ as king. No one wants a Jesus Christ that gets angry. That you ought to kiss the son out of fear. All they want to do is sing about, put your hand in the hand of the man. That's from 1970. Any of you remember it? They don't want the Lord of glory. I want the Lord of glory. I want him on his white horse and I want to be behind him on a white horse that he's given me. Most pulpits today are totally silent about this subject especially in casual and contemporary churches, because a review of the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Malachi, of Daniel, of Joel, of Moses, of David, of Paul, and of Peter would bore them. Satan uses this ignorance to confuse men about the meaning of the New Testament, and Satan uses this ignorance to defrock the Lord Jesus Christ of the glory that He deserves. He takes away the witness that was intended by that preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul warned Titus of Jewish fables, so we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when fables come along that are designed to support natural, national, carnal, reprobate Israel. So shouldn't be surprised because Paul told one of his preachers that that would happen. Due to their ignorance of Scripture, many Christians have an ungodly obsession and idolization of Jews. The true Jew has been always, and especially since the time of Christ, a regenerate elect child of God. Because those are the true people of God, and it's always been that way. Whether it was Rahab, Ruth, or anyone else in the Old Testament, or Melchizedek himself, that didn't have a thing to do with Abraham, they were the true children of God. But God had chosen to deal with the nation of Israel as his public, corporate kingdom on earth. That's where he had his representatives. That's where he had his law, his priests, his sacrificial system. And he chose to do that. But he chose to end it as well. And that's what we want to see today. There's value in studying this this subject. It's going to give you a historical and a prophetic and a scriptural framework to help understand the whole New Testament. Because there's a lot of references in the New Testament to this event. It's going to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ as King, so that when you read about Him saying to the church at Ephesus, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come and take away thy candlestick, you will believe that there is a Savior and a King that walks among the golden candlesticks of His churches, and He will come and judge a church, because He came and judged the church from the wilderness, the Old Testament church, and He judged it severely. Oh, and it'll save us, brethren, from all the prophetic speculations that are coming down. All the cartoon books and comics and all their ideas of what's coming in the future, they've all taken old, they've taken fulfilled prophecies and jammed them out there and speculated about them. 
No one's going to get left behind. I promise. Trust me. I promise you. Trust me. Second Thessalonians 1 doesn't allow for any to be left behind. You know where they get the left behind? Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and one shall be left. They don't have a clue about what that's talking about. That isn't the second coming. Second coming is not even in the chapter where that is found. Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken. Now, he gave us two examples of men being taken. He told us what the taking means, and it's not the rapture. He said, in the days of Noah, the flood came and took them all away. And then the days of Sodom, the fire came and took them all away. The one that got taken away was the one under judgment that was taken away. The one that was left was the one that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved from the judgment that came. They've got it so backed, twisted up, and messed up, they don't know what they're talking about. No one's going to be left behind. When Jesus Christ comes in His second coming, He's going to come with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 1, and to be admired of all them that believe in that day. And we read that in 2 Thessalonians 1, then 1 Thessalonians 4, then 1 Corinthians 15. And we read about that through the rest of the New Testament where it is written to us as Gentiles. And there's one resurrection, both of the just and the unjust, as it's taught in Acts 24 and verse 15. My goals, I want you to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings. I want you to know Him as a King. I want you to kiss the Son lest He be angry. I want you to rejoice. I want you to love singing songs like we did this morning. Crown Him with many crowns. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. I want you to believe that. I want to confirm clear Bible prophecies. I want to give you an understanding of the Bible. And I want you to be thankful for the worldwide preaching of the Gospel that took the gospel of the kingdom into all the world and was preached to every nation because we are the effects of it. For 2,000 years, second generation ministers have kept up the preaching that was first done by the apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus, and we are the beneficiaries of it. Here we are on the other side of the planet. And it was preached in all the world for a witness before 70 A.D. Before Paul died, he said it ten times in the New Testament that the gospel had gone to all the world. They are still trying to enforce the Great Commission on you and on me. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission because we don't have the apostolic power to do it. Second, it wasn't ever given to us. It was given to the eleven apostles. It was never repeated in an epistle of the New Testament. Third, it was fulfilled as Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, tell us plainly. The last four verses of Mark 16 tell us that the Great Commission was fulfilled right in context of when it was given. Does that mean that we don't want to spread the gospel? We're doing the best we can to spread it as far as we can. We're thankful for the witty inventions that God has given us. And if we can go out into the highways and hedges and compel a few more Gentiles to come in, we're going to do that. If we can compel a few Jews to come in, we're going to do that. We're doing the best we can. If you've got ideas on how to do it better, tell me about them. But we don't think we're trying to fulfill the Great Commission. We're just trying to fulfill the Little Commission. The Little Commission, but watch thou in all things and do the work of an evangelist. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. We can't do the Great Commission because I can't travel like Philip, I can't preach any language like Paul, and I can't raise the dead with my shadow like Peter. And it was never given to us anyway. Do you know how, do you know how absolutely foreign 
bizarre, extreme of a point of truth I just gave you? There's hardly anyone left in the world that believes that. They think the reason a church exists is for the perpetuation of the Great Commission. And so their churches are totally misdirected as to the purpose of an assembly. It is not to get together to run the machinery of the Great Commission. The Lord raised up men that were able to do the Great Commission quite well themselves. And they did it, brethren. We're going to see that today. And remember, the point I'm trying to make here is why I'm preaching this. For us to be thankful for the gospel that was preached and we are the beneficiaries of it. Praise His great and glorious name. I'm not going to do a full study on this unless something, someone, someone's convinced me to do otherwise. Because I just want to hit some of the high points today and we'll go on to something else next week, Lord willing. You know, if you really wanted to get grounded in this subject, you would do a verse-by-verse analysis of Daniel 9. It's on the website. The book of Haggai got the outline. Malachi got the outline. Book of Hebrews got it. And Matthew 24 got it. You need to go through all those places and Mark 13, Luke 21, Luke 19, Luke 17. You need to read all those places if you want to get a full orb picture of this subject, and that's the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 24 is Matthew's account. Mark 13 is Mark's account. Luke 21 is Luke's account. But Luke did some neat things in 19 and 17 about the same subject. This study is going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. And I'm certainly not making much progress this morning. Acts 2. But I want to give you a foundation as to what is wrong in Christianity today. This subject's lost. You know, when we, when we think about truth as we did last Sunday, we realize that baptism marks off 95% of those that call themselves Christians because they don't even know how to baptize. But then as we start down the list, we get into smaller and smaller company trying to follow the New Testament. And here we are. I want to show you how Peter preached. And I want to preach just like Peter. And I want you to understand what Peter was saying to the Jews in Jerusalem. It is 43 days after they crucify, it's a total of 50. It's a total of 50 because Pentecost means 50. Penta. Pentecost. Here he is. Acts chapter 2. Let's start at verse 32. Peter's got quite a crowd of Jews. A few days earlier, he was terrified of even a handmaiden. He's no longer terrified. He's full of the Holy Ghost. He's speaking in all sorts of different languages and declaring the the wonderful works of God. Here's Acts chapter 2 and verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The hearers understood that lesson. Peter understood that lesson. I hope you understand that lesson. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly God hath taken the same Jesus that you crucified and made Him Lord, and He's about to make His enemies His footstool. And who were His enemies? 
the Jews that had just crucified him. They knew the story. They knew Acts 2. They knew the prophecies of Psalm 110, that he was going to be Lord. And Peter declared it right here on the spot. There were incredible things happening with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. The Bible was being fulfilled. And those that had slain the Son of God were about to pay for it. We're going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Peter exalting him. He says in verse 32, this Jesus. In verse 33, therefore being by the right hand of God, exalted. He was sitting at the right hand of God 50 days after he was crucified. And then he says in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Can you imagine being a Jew and having said 50 days earlier, His blood be on us and on our children. We have no king but Caesar. And then to have Peter tell you 50 days later, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And what did Lord mean to them when he quoted from Psalm 110? He is about to make you his footstool. That's the New Testament. Preached over and over and over again. But then it came to the Gentiles, and so there's less of it by Paul. But now when Paul writes the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is full of it because he's writing to Hebrews. So he gets those warnings in there again about the coming judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't have to write the Ephesians or the Colossians about it because the judgment wasn't coming on them. We're going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was born the son of David, who was the king of Israel, by a virgin of Judah to be the Messiah and king of Israel. And we're going to confirm him as that. He was once a child in a manger, and he once hung on the cross for us. But he's no longer there. A few days later, he was seated at the right hand of God with all power, with all the angels of heaven at his beck and call. He he was Lord of hosts. And he was going to come in judgment on those that had slain his prophets, his apostles, and him. A simple timeline. Let's think about a few things. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven in 30 A.D. How do you know that? Everybody knows that. All you got to do is go look at history because we have Luke chapter 3. What do we have in Luke chapter 3? In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ came on the scene. When did Jesus Christ die? 30 A.D. You say, well, if he was 33 and a half years old, that means he was born in 4 B.C. You are absolutely correct. The man who came up with the B.C. A.D. rendering did not know the history of Tiberius Caesar and overlooked an important fact that made an error by four years. Everyone knows that and does any study of why we write 2005 for this year when it's really 2009. It's just a, you know, it's just a man-made thing. God didn't say we had to write 2005 this year. That's what some man gave us, and he made a mistake. Anyway, enough on that. Go check that out yourself. It doesn't really matter. Jesus died in 30 A.D. It doesn't matter whether he died in 30 in your mind or 33, because all the prophecies of Scripture are still true. There's just one little problem you've got to take care of. You've got to make sure that from the decree of Cyrus the Persian to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince is 483 years. Because that brings us to Messiah the Prince. 
And what is coming? When was Jesus announced as Messiah the Prince? When John the Baptist baptized him at the age of 30, which was 26 A.D. That's when he was announced as Messiah the Prince to Israel. No one knew him as the Messiah until then. That's when John the Baptist said, There's one coming after me that is mightier than I. I am not worthy to even loose his shoe latches. And then he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus was baptized. The Father thundered from heaven. The Holy Spirit abided on him. And he began his ministerial work. That's when Messiah the Prince was presented to Israel. Go read John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. And you can find out about when Jesus was announced as Messiah. That was 30 A.D. That Jesus died. And rose again. The apostles received great power at Pentecost 50 days later and took the gospel to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. What had Jesus told them? Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. I will give you enormous power from heaven, the Holy Spirit of God, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That took place next. 50 days after the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. They were given enormous power. The sign gifts, the revelatory gifts of being able to speak in tongues, of being able to have the gift of prophecy, of having the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, of being able to heal the sick, perform miracles, raise the dead, serpents wouldn't hurt you, poison wouldn't hurt you. All those gifts lasted for that period of time until 70 A.D. while the apostles were having their word established. After 70 A.D., there was no reason for those gifts. And so 1 Corinthians 13 tells us they went away. And they went away. They were going away while Paul was still writing his epistles. Remember, Paul could heal with a hanky, but by before 70 A.D., he could no longer heal. Because he told Timothy to drink a little wine. That's a home remedy. He couldn't heal him. He left Trophimus at Ephesus sick. And so forth and so on. But those men had the gifts, and so they went everywhere and preached the gospel. The Jews had always been a rebellious sort of people. The Bible tells us that. They rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against anyone that God ever put over them. And they they became more and more rebellious and began to revolt against the Roman authority in 66 A.D. Cestius Gallus brought Cestius Gallus, the general of that area, the province of Syria, brought the 12th legion out of Antioch of Syria, brought it down to Jerusalem, and surrounded the city and could have taken, taken the city in a day. He had 35 to 40,000 men at his disposal. He could have taken the city in a day. He withdrew for no reason at all, and it's one of the greatest military blunders in the history of the world, and it is well documented, and he was disgraced for such a horrible move. He had the city encompassed. He had totally surrounded the city of Jerusalem and could have taken it in the middle of 66 A.D. and withdrew. You say, where's that in the Bible? Simple. When you see when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then get out, knowing that the desolation thereof is nigh. That's where it's at in the Bible. Because if you have a city encompassed with armies, how are you going to get out when they leave and they left? And all military tacticians and historians have said he left for no reason at all. But we have a reason, and it's Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, and Jesus Christ is king of the kings of the earth. The king's heart is in his hand as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. The Lord hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, 
and to give their kingdoms to the beast. Revelation 17, 17. There is no king nor military general nor military tactician that God has not controlled from his A's to his Z's. He's the God of heaven. He raises up kings and he puts down kings. He makes generals look brilliant like Alexander the Great. And he makes generals look stupid like Cestius Gallus. He is king. And I love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And I love representing him as his pitiful little ambassador. The Jews revolted. Cestius Gallus arrives and leaves. I want to tell you what happened. When he tried to withdraw 40,000 soldiers from around the city of Jerusalem... All those demon-possessed zealots inside that city came out thinking that they were going to defeat the Romans. And they chased him all the way back to Antioch and they slew 7,000 of his men, took all of his engines of war, and took all of his baggage. That inflamed their hearts to think that they could defeat Rome. I love the God of heaven. Even we can figure out what he was doing to them. He was inflaming and hardening their heart just like he inflamed and hardened the heart of Pharaoh a long time before. Just like he inflamed and hardened the heart of the last kings of Israel and Judah before they were taken captive. But do you know what else that did? When the stench of that got to Rome, Rome wasn't very happy. And what else did he accomplish by that withdrawal? The Christians were able to realize the desolation is drawing nigh. And they were able to get out of Jerusalem. Nobody preaches this anymore. Everyone used to know it. Everyone. On all the verses I've covered so far, there wasn't any controversy. I despise modern religion. The believers in the city and country were able to flee between the middle of 66 A.D. and Passover of 70 A.D. when Titus arrived. The emperor of Rome said, Cestius Gallus can't do the job. He said, Vespasian, I want you to take two legions out of Antioch of Syria. Come from the north down in Jerusalem. I want Titus, your son, to bring a legion up out of the Egypt garrison. And so Titus and Vespasian came to meet at Jerusalem. They were wiping out cities on their way there because the Romans hated the Jews for that little revolt on the part of a little people that were so weak they couldn't have fought their way out of a wet paper bag unless God were to enable them, and God had left them when Jesus said, your house is left unto you desolate. They were not his people. He had a new people, the Gentiles, because the Apostle Paul had gone and turned from the Jews and turned to the Gentiles because that is what God had commanded him to do. I have set you to be a light of the Gentiles. The emperors killed three of them. The emperors killed three, the, the emperors and the senate killed three emperors in the year 66 and 67 AD, and so Vespasian became emperor, and his son Titus was given the charge of three legions. You say, where's that in the Bible? Simple. Daniel chapter 9, we're at it right now, and I'll read it to you in a minute. I'm giving you a timeline so that you can understand the Bible. It's gonna say the people of the, the people of the, the people of the prince that shall come. It doesn't say the people of the king that shall come, because Titus that came wasn't a king. He was a prince. His father Vespasian was the king and the emperor of Rome. Titus was a prince and the son of Vespasian, and he brought the three legions and all their attachments, their engines of war, and surround the city of Jerusalem in a precious week of the year. Passover, 70 A.D. Every Jew in the world that still holds their heritage 
sacred at all knows exactly the day when Titus arrived. They know exactly when the evening and the morning sacrifice could no longer be offered because there were no lambs left. And they know exactly when the Romans took the temple of Jerusalem. And it was on the very same day that Nebuchadnezzar had taken it 500 years earlier, which is irrelevant. But they know exactly when all these events took place. They surrounded the city in the week of Passover. What had God promised the nation of Israel when all their men were to leave their homes, their farms, and come to the city of God's appointment to worship God? What he would do? He would take away the desire of all their enemies of wanting to invade Israel so that the men could leave their homes and they'd be safe. Your house is left unto you desolate. Titus arrived at Passover, a city that normally only held a couple hundred thousand people, had 1.2 million in it for the Passover. He dug a trench and built a wall all the way around the city, just as Luke 19 tells us. And he besieged that city, and the women ate their children, just as Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us they would eat their own children. The names of the women that ate their children are known by the historians that stood outside the city wall and heard the reports. Because God gave a witness that was in the newspapers of the world, because his gospel was preached exactly what would happen, and exactly what he had said would happen, did happen, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he crushed his enemies. And he saved those alive that put their trust in him. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The generation was the most devil-possessed generation the world had ever seen. Far more were killed by themselves than the Romans ever killed. Inside the city walls, defending the religion of God, the Romans outside, they killed more inside than the Romans ever killed. There was an account before the Romans had ever breached the city walls that 600,000 had been killed. The blood ran in the streets like creeks, like rivers. Titus and Josephus, Josephus who was a general of the Jewish armies, a Jew, stood outside and recorded and said, Never had on this earth has there ever been such a devil-possessed generation. That they would, because Titus offered them terms, he would have spared the city, spared the temple, if they would have just surrendered. But God had hardened up those people so that he could level that city and fulfill the prophecies that he had given from the very beginning. And he did every single bit of that that he had said he would do. The total number of the dead was 1.1 million. For Titus besieged the city, they were counted. Over 1.1 million for Titus besieged the city at Passover when it was filled with visitors for worshiping God. There were only 97,000 taken captive. Yesterday or the day before was the anniversary of the 60-year anniversary of Hiroshima. Hiroshima was a Sunday school picnic compared to what happened in Jerusalem. You say, where's that found in the Bible? Here's where it's found. Then shall be great tribulation such as the world has never seen, nor shall it ever see. No city ever suffered the atrocities within its walls that the city of Jerusalem suffered. Right. Hiroshima. Some say 40,000 died. Some say 120,000 died. Let's say it's 100,000. How long did they have to think about the pain? Less than a nanosecond. Instant death. Sunday school picnic. 
No, no women were eating their children in the city of Hiroshima in 1945. The city of Hiroshima was not set on such fear that it was unbelievable because everybody in the streets, knew, nobody knew who was going to kill whom next. Jesus is king. Amen. He will miserably destroy those murderers. That's a verse we haven't got to yet. I'm giving you a little timeline. There were 97,000 taken captive. Titus took some of them back to drag in chains through the streets of Rome. And to this day, there is the big arch that was erected in the honor of Titus. Coins were stamped. On the arch is the seven, the golden candlestick of the Jewish nation, the Ark of the Covenant, pictures of it engraved on the arch because Titus destroyed those rebellious people. And it's still there to this day as a witness to all nations. But Jesus Christ preached it by himself and his predecessor, John the Baptist, and his apostles before 70 A.D. And there's still a standing monument to it in the city of Rome because Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Those captives of the 97,000 that were above the age of 17 were not, of course, under the age of 17. They were adopted into families as slaves. Some were drugged through the streets of Rome behind Titus and his chariot. The rest, this is beautiful. The rest were taken to the coast of Israel, put in ships, and sailed down to Egypt and made to work as slaves in the salt mines of Egypt. Now, where did that come from? That is Deuteronomy 28, verse 68. I will take you back into Egypt and make you slaves again. This prophecy had been made from the beginning, of the, the beginning of the Bible to the end of it. Moses spoke of it on several occasions, and it goes all the way through because it, was, it is a great event in the history of God's dealing with his people. He left the Jewish nation, he brought in the Gentiles and rebuilt the house of David, as Acts 15 tells us, with Gentiles and some Jews. But the multitude were Gentiles. Of course, there's a whole lot more detail that could be given. Much, much more detail. Because there was an eyewitness that was a Jew, a a military general, standing outside the city next to Titus. They recorded every blow. His name was Josephus, and you can read about it. Let's go, let's look at a couple. We're we're at Daniel chapter 9. Or we were. Since you weren't, as I can tell by the pages turning, let's go to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. If you were there, I was going to save you time. Deuteronomy 18. Here's the first prophecy, a significant one that Moses gave about the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when God came down on Mount Sinai and gave the law to Israel, He came down in such a terrifying presentation of His glory and power and consuming fire that they said, we don't want God to speak with us. We won't listen. It's too, it's too much. We want a man like you, Moses. So God said, okay, I'll give you a man like Moses. But here's what he had to say about him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. This is Moses speaking. Unto him ye shall hearken. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. 
That, that was their request. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among them, their brethren, from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now, was this Moses that's being described in those verses? No. Was it Joshua? No. Was it Samuel? No. Was it David? No. Solomon? No. Zerubbabel? No. Joshua the high priest of Zerubbabel's day? No. Who was it? The Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3 and see the Apostle Peter apply that prophecy to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a manger, not a, not a baby in a manger. He's not a manger either. He's not on a crucifix. And He's not a man that you put your hand in presumptuously. He is the Lord of glory. Amen. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the bishop of our souls. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Amen. Kiss the Son this morning. Love Him. Submit yourself to Him. Examine your souls. Where are you not obeying Him? Because the Word of God said, I will raise up a man like you, Moses, and he will speak everything that I command him. And, if, and whosoever will not obey him, what he says, I will require it. And he'll require it of us. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Acts three twenty-two. For Moses truly said unto the fathers. Here we have that Deuteronomy passage brought forward to the New Testament. Acts 3.22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Now we have an interpretation given to us for what the words were. It shall be required of him. They shall be destroyed from among the people. Turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. If you enjoy the introduction, then maybe you'll come back this evening. We're going to have the Lord's Supper tonight. And we're going to celebrate our King who laid down His life for us. Deuteronomy 28, I just want you to read uh, one verse. This is, this is so long because Deuteronomy 28 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible and it's called the blessings and the curse. If you'll obey God, He'll bless you. It's the first 14 verses. If you disobey God, He's going to curse you, verses 15 through 68. And if you read verses 15 through 68, it is one horrible description of what the God of heaven can do to men. And it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Now it had been fulfilled earlier than that too. It was fulfilled when the Assyrians came and took Israel captive. And it was fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the Jews captive from the city of Jerusalem. It speaks here about women that were so delicate that they didn't even like to put the sole of their foot on the ground for delicacy would eat their own children during the siege. Yes, it says that. I just want one verse. Deuteronomy twenty-eight sixty-eight. Oh, these verses are incredible. Look at, I want to go back to verse. Oh, there's so many verses here, but I can't read this whole passage. 
They're going to be scattered among all nations, all people. They will be, they will live, their life will hang in doubt. Verse 66, thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. Thou shalt fear day and night, shall have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, would God it were even. And at even thou shalt say, would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. And the Lord, and the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships. By the way whereof I spake unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again, and there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. There were too many of them. It crushed the market for slaves by being dumped all at once on the nation of Egypt. Remember God had said, you'll never be back here again, but that was a conditional promise. And those Jews in Jesus' day wanted to rebel against him. Look what he did to them. He took them back to Egypt. And brethren, he can send us back to Egypt anytime he wishes if we rebel against him. He is king and lord of us as well. We have read Psalm 2 this morning about the kings of the earth standing up against the Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, would have them in derision. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. Just a couple more passages and we'll close for this morning. I know the hour is late. I'm sorry, but I'm not very sorry. Daniel chapter 2. Remember from Isaiah 9 that we began with a little while ago? A child is given. A son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, upon the throne of David. The Lord Jesus Christ is David's son. You know, when we read the Bible, even as children, we all love David. Because David was a great king. David was a great young man. Everyone loved David. David was great. He was a man after God's own heart. He destroyed all his enemies. He wasn't afraid of Goliath. He was a great king. And the Lord Jesus Christ is called the son of David. And he's called David prophetically. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is like David. David did not put up with enemies. David crushed his enemies. You ought to go read about some of the battles when they tried to shame David and what David did to his foes. And we have the son of David in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, we want the most important verse from this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. We have an image there of the four great empires of the world, Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we get down to the kings of the Roman Empire, and it says this in verse 44, And the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And that is the kingdom of heaven. That is the kingdom of God, announced by John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, about the fulfillment of that. In the days of these kings, well now it couldn't be in the, in the days of these kings, meaning Babylon's kings, Persia's kings, Greeks' kings, and Rome's kings, because they weren't all reigning at the same time. So you're at the bottom of the empire where you've got two legs, ten toes, made out of, made out of iron and clay, not mixing very well, and starting to crumble into pieces. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. And he set up that kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, The Pharisees asked Jesus, when's the kingdom of God going to appear? He said, the kingdom of God is within you. It doesn't come with observation like you're looking for. I don't have an army behind me. My army's invisible. 
It's within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. Oh, he is a king. Amen. He is a king. Oh, yeah. It's just a different kind of king because he rules not only over a little piece of ground on earth. He rules over heaven and hell as well. Yeah. He has the key. He has the key, which is the authority and the power of David. He has the keys of hell and of death. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, and we will be back here tonight. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And it, went, and it goes on and describes John the Baptist's ministry, but notice his words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God was about to institute the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven on earth in a different form than it had been. Because the, the, the nation of Israel had been called the kingdom of God to this point. But he was through with them. And he was establishing the kingdom of God that we're part of. The spiritual reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 3. You know all those Hal Lindsey's clearance... Larkins, C.I. Schofields, they all believe that the kingdom of God is some future event. The Bible doesn't say that at all. Peter announced that the kingdom was already set and Jesus was on his throne in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after he was crucified. Luke 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, is God giving us a date? giving us a very important date, very specific date. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Now that's quite a description of an exact point in time, isn't it? Yes. All you have to do is go back into Roman records and find out exactly when all those men were reigning at one time, and you've narrowed down exactly the time that you want to find. And what is the time? It is 26 A.D., Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came preaching. So we're told exactly when it was, and we're told exactly what the message was. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ said this, If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did Jesus Christ cast out devils by the finger of God? Yes. Then the kingdom of God was come upon them. Luke 16, 16. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. We saw that, didn't we? Matthew 3. John was preaching the kingdom of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Can you press into something that doesn't exist? Can you press into something that's going to come in 2,000 years? No, the kingdom of God was there, and men were pressing into it. Luke 16, 16. This is the kingdom that Paul described in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 29, when he said, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be destroyed, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He was about to burn up a city. 
And so Paul was warning those Hebrews to be faithful to the kingdom they had been given, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which wasn't tied to Jerusalem and a Levitical priesthood. It was tied to heaven, the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all, to an innumerable company of angels, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to the blood of Jesus Christ, which speaketh better things than that of Abel. That is a very different covenant. The Jews were still tied to Abel, still tied to the blood of animals, still tied to the Levitical priesthood, and he was about to burn up those enemies and their city. But we have a kingdom. It was brought in, announced by John the Baptist. Jesus Christ preached the same gospel. Paul followed with the same gospel. Jesus Christ reigns on the throne of David in heaven with all power in heaven and in earth. And he was about to make his enemies his footstool. And we will see more of all this tonight. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.